as well. A few announcements that I have for you. And first of all, we are so excited for the launch of our life groups. And we just, yeah, and we want to invite you to be a part of those. Um, we had a meeting last night with life group leaders, and it was just really cool to sit back and remember why this is so valuable and why it's so important. And we're excited for what God might do as you gather together in smaller communities to kind of do life together. And so we have quarters that we run those on, and you would be making a commitment from um, October is when they start, the first week of October, through about the 10th of December for that fall quarter. And if you're interested in doing that, we, have, we don't have a ton of different groups, as you can imagine, some of the restrictions and just life kind of getting back on the, the highway going at 60 miles an hour for a lot of people um, has kind of dwindled our group numbers down a little bit. Um, and so as flexible as you can be, that would be awesome. Um, but we have in-person and we have online groups as well. And the way that you would sign up for one of those, two ways. Number one, if you're already in a group, and you know of someone that needs to be in one, would you invite them? That is just a nice, safe thing that's helpful when someone says, hey, come and be a part of my group. That's pretty cool. Um, but if you're one of those brave souls that's like, I'm venturing in, uh, ready, get me in someone's living room, um, you would sign up on your online communication card at brickviewchurch.com, or you would text the word group to the number that's listed here behind me. Um, so again, we are getting ready to place people in those groups, and we would love to have you be a part of one of those. Next thing is, as you can tell, I love Brookview. I'm wearing the logo, but there's actually a reason for it. Um, we are doing our second test run of Kids Church this morning as we are preparing for a fall launch of this ministry. And um, we are looking for volunteers who might be willing to invest in kids. We serve on a rotation. It is one week on and at least five weeks off. And that is kind of our commitment to you as a volunteer. We don't want you stuck back there or um, missing out on what's going on here. We believe that part of a healthy rhythm in your life is to be part of the worship gathering here. And so we just are looking for volunteers who would be willing to connect with kids. We have a little bit, for those of you that have volunteered before, we have a little bit of a different um, curriculum that we're using that I am really excited about. And um, one thing that this curriculum does is it tells the Bible story and the Bible lesson through video for us. And it makes it a lot easier on us as volunteers because we get to, the kids get to see the Bible come to life in a really exciting way, kind of like the Disney Channel at times. And I'm like, this is really cool. I'm learning a lot. I learn so much, you guys, when I teach kids church. And then what we do as adults is we wrap around them and we help them to figure out how does this apply to your everyday life at home and at school. And the lessons are all built there for you, and they're just ready for you to kind of take and relate to kids and make an investment in them. And so if that sounds like something you would be open to, we would love to get you connected and give you more information. You're not signing on for life. Um, and really, depending on the number of volunteers that we have, will determine how often we can offer kids' church programming to our kiddos. But they are worth it. 
they deserve it. They have been through a long journey in this pandemic, and they're getting back to school. But we want to get them back into the rhythm of thinking about God in community with other people the way that we have gotten to here as part of our program. So the way that you would sign up to volunteer in Kids Church is kind of the same as life groups. Number one, you would go to the online communication card, and there's a box that you can check that says, I'd like to volunteer. Or you can text kids to the Brookview number. I did mention that online communication card, and we would love to hear from all of you, whether you're watching at home or you're here in person. If you log on to brookviewchurch.com and then you click on contact, and the card is, is right there for you. Um, I'm going next door. Enjoy your time here, and I'm excited to hear how it went. Chinese authorities have traced a new deadly virus back to this seafood market in the Today, city the of World Wuhan. The World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. The U.S. does not have enough coronavirus The unemployment test- rate tripling to 14.7%. Coronavirus cases still high across the country. Students, teachers, and parents have been forced to adapt to distance learning. The Golden State, a record-breaking 2 million-plus acres have burned. The nation erupted into scenes of chaos. Violence and widespread destruction into the early morning hours. From Brazil to Iran, thousands have gathered to show solidarity with U.S. protests over the killing of George Floyd. Pfizer is shipping out the first doses of the coronavirus vaccine as we speak. Now, we can't force you to take a jab in the arm, but there are many jobs, perhaps, that can prevent you from working if you decide not to get vaccinated. You know, people are angry. I mean, on the internet, I see people are threatening to boycott restaurants that follow these guidelines. Several countries have offered assistance to Haiti, including the U.S., Panama, Colombia, and Mexico, among Family others. Family members and children trying to get to the airport but being whipped back and beaten by Taliban fighters. Oh, Katie, you're a Stranger Things person, aren't you? Oh, you go, girl. Uh, so, so we have this really, like, emotion, you know, provocative sort of video that ends with something that makes everyone giggle. Uh, that's really good. The music is, if you, if you didn't know, the music is from, from a show called Stranger Things. So, um, all right, well, today I, I want to start with a very famous quote from a commencement speech, and this was given by an author named David Foster Wallace, and he was speaking to graduates from Kenyon College in 2008, and then later it became famous because it was printed in the Wall Street Journal. And this is what he said to those young graduates that day. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything, you, everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. We've, we've talked a lot over the last few weeks about secularism in America, about its rapid acceleration over the last year and a half. 
But in a sense, religion has not gone away. In fact, you could argue that America is more religious than ever. You could argue that we're actually living through a generation-wide religious revival. But that the religion has moved over into the realm of politics. For many, worship has shifted from Jesus and his way more to devotion to a political agenda and then evangelizing the world in the name of that agenda. One social commentator I saw said that Christians are are being discipled less and less by Jesus and more and more by CNN and Fox News or their political outlet of choice. And there are all sorts of factors, I think, that have led to this, to the rapid rise of politics as this kind of big-time pseudo-religion. And we've talked about this. Our culture of individualism has been exaggerated, of course, by the isolation of COVID, which has led to increasing amounts of tribalism, which we've talked about a lot, which is leading to anger and hate and widespread relational breakdown. So this is what we focused on the last several weeks. Today, I want to like shift gears and go a direction that for a moment you're going to be like, what? How does this tie into anything that we've been doing? Um, but we're going to shift gears and then we're going to kind of bring it all back at the end. And this is, you guys, this is going to be brilliant. Okay. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big promise. If you don't think it's brilliant, don't email me. Um, but as, as we wrap up this four-week series focusing on this really odd cultural moment that we've been living in for quite some time now, I want us to look at something else that is attracting worshipers, a- another pseudo-religion that because of all things COVID and the election cycle has really not been in the spotlight all that much, but it is just as prevalent a form of idolatry in our culture right now, and it is the religion of work. Or maybe you could say careerism. The the truth is, work is an important part of life for all of us. Whether your work happens to be paid or unpaid, work is something that God intends for you to do and do well. So as we launch into this message, I want to read for you God's vision for work. And as I read it, I want to invite you guys to stand um, because in many churches throughout history, the, the body of believers will, will stand together for the reading of Scripture. And this is just a way of acknowledging with our bodies that what we are about to hear is more than just ancient literature. That it is, in fact, Scripture. So, okay, please stand with me. Here is the core vision of God for human work. Um, And this is Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves 
on the ground. Okay, let's jump over to chapter 2. Genesis 2, picking up in verse 8. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A water, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, as opposed to the, the not good gold, apparently. So I just want to say, uh, just a little aside, if you have gold that you think is not good, I'm happy to take it off your hands for, for you. Just let me know. Okay, so the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gahon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. Okay, you can be seated. So in the beginning, God intended work to be a form of worship. A way to partner with him and honor him by producing beauty and good things. But these days, for many, work has become the object of worship. Uh, Derek Thompson is a staff writer for The Atlantic, and he refers to it as, calls it workism. And in an article entitled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable, he writes this. Says the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The best educated and highest earning Americans, who can have whatever they want, have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. But the problem of, of workism isn't just for like an elite few. It's, it's not just for, like, rich, old people. Um, Thompson goes on to say in this article, he says, What's more, in a, recent Pew research, uh, in a recent Pew Research report on the epidemic of youth anxiety, 95% of teens said having a job or career they enjoy would be extremely or very important. 95% said it would be extremely or very important to them as an adult. This ranked higher than any other priority, including helping other people who are in need, which was 81%, or getting married, 47%. So finding meaning at work beats family and kindness as the top ambition for today's young people. So one way to describe what's, what's happening for many is that work has become a religion. Uh, you think of the image of the work environment at some of the large tech companies not so far away from here. 
like a Microsoft or Google office complex, and it has a cafe and a gym and has community events and nap pods, which is kind of cool. <laughs> but it's, until you realize, it's, it's engineered to essentially make your job your life. To, to make it your identity. It's like, tell me about yourself. Well, I am, and you just fill in your career. To make the workplace your primary community of belonging and even your ultimate purpose in life. For many, work has evolved from a means of material production to a means of identity production. And the result of our achievement culture worshiping at the altar of career is a generation-wide epidemic of burnout chronic anxiety, and doping. In 2019, the World Health Organization finally included burnout in its international classification of diseases. And despite all the conversation that, that's happening these days around wellness and all of the apps that we now have to get you in the right headspace or, or for meditation or whatever, burnout is getting worse and worse, not better. In one wide-ranging study on the rise of burnout through just through COVID in the workplaces. 89% of respondents, guys, 89% of respondents said their work life is getting worse. 62% of people had experienced burnout often or extremely often in the previous three months. So while work is very good and, a, and an important part of our life and our humanity, for many, work has become an altar on which Virtually all else is sacrificed. Marriage, family, integrity, soul. It, it, it turns out that work is a very bad religion. So let's think together about work in the way that, that God intended it. How, how, do we, how do we approach work in a way that leads to flourishing for us and the people around us? Instead of a way that leads to burnout and then like crushes the human spirit. Well, in Genesis 1... We're told that humanity is created to rule. The idea is to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. That's pretty cool. To actively partner with God in taking the world forward. So you, you thought you were just, you know, you thought you were just going to work in the morning or you're just getting your kids out of bed or whatever. No. You are actively partnering with God in taking the world forward. Now, the Hebrew word um, can be translated rule or reign, or in the old King James, can't get enough of the old King James, it's have dominion. But it is the language of royalty, right? It's what kings and queens do. In fact, in the ancient Near East, the phrase, the image of God, was used exclusively for who? For the king. The, the king was thought of by all of society, and especially himself, as quasi-divine. And that meant, if you follow the implications of the worldview, that everyone else was not made in the image of God. The belief was that everybody else was just a pawn in the king's kingdom. They just like slave labor. Everybody else existed to do the king and whoever his elite friends were to do their bidding. And this makes the Genesis story, when you put it in its context, so subversive. Because into a world in which only kings could bear the image of the gods, Genesis says, no. No, actually, we're all made in the image of God. Every single person. Not just kings, not just one gender, not just men. Not just the, the one ethnic group that's in power. 
You guys, in its day and in its context, this was profoundly subversive. But when you think about it, this core idea now shapes much of our world. This concept has served to fashion most of Western culture. Like every single person on earth bears the image of God and has a unique role to play in shaping this world. Every single person has a domain to to rule, and ruling, it turns out, is a lot like what we call work. Human beings are to have dominion, to rule. Later, Later, we're told that they're put in the garden to do two things, to work it and take care of it. So a word on each. First, they are to work it. The, the Hebrew word for, for that can be translated cultivate or develop or draw out its potential. So in Genesis 2, we read about the raw materials of the Garden of Eden. You guys catch that? I mean, did you catch that paragraph and just wonder, like, what's with the weird thing about gold and onyx and Aramaic resin? And that's like an odd thing to throw in there. Well, listen to Tim Keller explain uh, kind of what that is all about. He says it is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. So what is work? It is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. Work is, is rearranging raw materials to create an Eden-like space for human beings to flourish in relationship to God and to each other and, and to the earth itself. Now, this is like, when you think about work, this is in a sense true of all work. But an obvious example would be when a farmer uh, takes soil and seed and, and rearranges it all as, as crop, which then produces food for people to eat and enjoy and live. Right? That's rearranging it for flourishing. Or when those of you who, who work at a restaurant or who have ever worked at a restaurant, you take that crop and other crops and you re- rearrange them into a meal for us to share in community, even if it's a f- like in a freezing cold tent outside with a bad heater, right? Or, or when an entrepreneur takes an idea or a craftsperson takes a lump of clay or metal um, or a parent takes a child, to form that child. Work is taking the raw materials of a particular domain and cultivating them so that people flourish more fully. And you guys do this every day. We do this every day. So the humans are planted in the garden to work it, but they're also put there in Genesis. We're told to take care of it or put another way to protect it or watch over it or to guard it. And our generation has become very aware, right, of the need to guard the earth, to watch over it as a precious resource that does not belong to us. And that's really good. But it doesn't just belong to our grandchildren or to future generations. In the language of Scripture, specifically Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we steward it, not just for future generations, we steward it on His behalf. And this means we're not just called to any kind of work. We're not just called to to do whatever it takes to make money, but we're called to do garden-like work, to take the raw materials that we are given and care for them and then rearrange them for human flourishing. Our call is to live into the original vision for humanity in the garden. 
But what's important to realize is that the garden was a project. It was like an ongoing project, not a product, a complete, done, perfect product. Meaning, it was designed, it was created with the idea that it would, it would go somewhere. It would be taken somewhere. It would be fashioned into something even more by human beings. Scholars argue that God's original intention before the fall was for the garden to be developed and spread over the whole earth. Right? They were to cultivate it and develop it and spread its boundaries. And that's why when you get to the end of the Bible, you get to the, to the book of Revelation, the last two chapters, all about the future, are dripping with illusion after illusion and quote after quote of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But in Revelation, the future dream is actually not a garden. In Revelation 21 and 22, the vision and the dream is a garden-like city. Uh, we hear, like, I think we hear sometimes that Jesus is going to heal and he's going to restore all things. And so it's easy for us to, like, just envision all of us sort of back in the garden, right? It's like we all live on Maui and we're all naked and somehow, some way, it's not weird, <laughs> right? I, for some of you that are like, well, that sounds awesome, I just want to say... That's not the vision in Revelation. Um, it's, it's somewhat similar, but it's different because in Revelation, the picture is not a garden. It is a garden-like city, and the people are clothed there. Um, and there's walls, and there's gates, and there's streets, and there's dwellings, and, and infrastructure, and society, and culture, and there's food, and drink, and music, and poetry, and there's parks built in, and then there's urban centers built in, and there's architecture. And so you go, well, like, why is that the future vision? Well, because the garden was never intended to stay a garden. It was always supposed to become a garden-like city, meaning God has this vision for us to do really meaningful work, to build and to develop. Whether it is paid or unpaid, it's, his vision is for us to move things forward to rearrange what's in front of us, to develop so that it leads to greater human flourishing. And that's why it makes sense that we're really prone to take our work seriously. There's something wired into us that causes us to take our work really seriously. It makes sense that we're motivated to work, to produce. It makes sense that we're, that we're motivated to partner with God to move something forward. That's how we're wired, and that's awesome. But as followers of Jesus, how do we worship through work without worshiping our work? Well, part of this is we need to see work as a spiritual activity. Like we are so inclined to reduce spiritual activities to very specific things like going to church, right? Like, like reading scripture, like prayer or, or whatever, and so if we don't see our work as a spiritual activity, then what we do is we take like two-thirds of our waking hours and almost completely disconnect them from God altogether. See, if, if work is partnering with God to move the world forward, then your work, paid or unpaid, is actually a deeply spiritual activity. Whether we get paid for it and we call it a career or not. We all have something to do. We all have some way that we spend our time. We all have a vocation, so to speak. Could be raising kids. 
could be going to school. It could be going to work. It could be volunteering, but it's a vocation. And the word vocation in and of itself, it simply means like calling. Or the, the, the work, you know, the, the work that God has for you to do to, to move the world forward. That's what a calling is. And it will include how you make a living, but it is far, far more than that. Even if you aren't employed, you still have a calling, right? Even if you aren't earning money, you still have lots of very meaningful work to do. And so what I want to do is just quickly lay out a little bit bigger vision of what a calling is in Scripture. Let me highlight a couple things. Number one, first, our primary calling is to follow Jesus. Our primary call is not to a job or to a career. And this means whether you have the privilege of doing like your dream job or you're doing something that feels completely mundane, you, you, like you happen to be going through maybe a, a period of unemployment or your primary vocation is a stay-at-home parent or a caregiver of some kind or you just are like a volunteer. Even if that, you have a calling from God, you have a destiny to move things forward in God's great universe, and one day you will co-rule with Jesus over all the universe. Get your mind around that. And if that sounds crazy, then I just encourage you, go read the last two chapters of the Bible. Secondly, we're called to work as an act of discipleship to Jesus. So we often don't think of, of work as a form of discipleship, right? It gets in the way of discipleship. If I just had more time to read my Bible, I would be, man, I would be deep, right? So maybe you get up at six and take time for scripture and prayer and you think of that as discipleship, but then when you have to be at work at eight o'clock or whatever time you have to be there, you don't think of that as discipleship at all. But think about it. Like, what did Jesus do for most of his life? Anybody? What? Woodworking. He was a carpenter. One of you has read the Bible. <laughs> he was a car you guys, he was a carpenter for decades. He only did all the stuff we're reading about in the Bible for three years. Prior to that, he was a carpenter. Or a tradesman or a construction, you know, like so so he was a car and, and if he were to come today, you know, what would he come as? Maybe a carpenter. Or, you know, he could be a software engineer. Or it could be a teacher, or a construction worker, or a tradesman, or a barista. Jesus would make a mean barista, wouldn't he? Or an artist, or a small business owner. The point is, if Jesus were to come today, he could very well do what you do. We must come to view our work, whether it's paid or unpaid, whether it's glamorous or mundane, whether it's our dream job or it kind of feels like some sort of lame thing or it's even a volunteer thing. We must view it as a key facet of our apprenticeship to Jesus because it is the place that we spend the bulk of our time. It is the, the primary context in which our spirit can get formed. It is in that place that we deal with people, wonderful people, really hard people. We deal with challenges. We deal with blessings. We deal with, we deal with our own shadow side. This is where we live out and actually refine our faith. So our, our calling is to follow Jesus and to see work as an act of discipleship. And then third, to play our role in the family of God and in the flourishing of humanity. And the whole idea here is that God is up to something in this world, but it isn't your job to achieve it 
all by yourself. Right? We are called to be family, to be brothers and sisters together. We are co-laborers, not only with Jesus, but with, with each other. So you have a role to play within the family of God. So there's, there's this corporate nature to our calling. We are family. But at the same time, it's also very individual, right? We all have a unique calling. Your calling is not mine, and mine is not yours. No one else can move the, the world forward in quite your way. No one has the same genetic wiring as you. No one has the same opportunities as you. No one knows the same combination of people that you know. Nobody knows the same uh, combination of inside jokes that you know, right? No one else sees the world the same way that you do. You are postured to do something that is special and something that is unique. And that is not by accident. Now, many of you, you don't have your dream job. Like, that's a bummer, right? Uh. <laughs> that does not mean that you can't partner with God. That does not mean that you cannot move the world forward. You are called. So how do we approach our work, again, paid or unpaid, glamorous or mundane, dream job or far from it, how do we repurpose it into a calling that includes God and is an act of worship? How do we, in other words, how do we do the same basic thing as most of our coworkers or the other parents that we know or whatever, but do it with God as an act of worship? Let me lay out three things that will set us apart. Okay, first, we are to do our work motivated by love. So our work is not to be driven by selfish ambition, right, or greed, or status-seeking, or grasping for power, or performative identity, or validation, or accolades to prop up our fragile ego. We, we may do the same thing as the person in the cubicle one spot over, but we should be doing it for a very different reason. If we are partnering with God, if our work is to be a calling, an act of worship, then it, it must be motivated by love. Now, some of you, you might be thinking, right now, well, that's easy for you to say, pastor, because your job is totally different from my job. You know, you just flit around loving people all day, no matter what, right? Your job is just to love people. The love part is for you is way easier for you than for me because my job is not your job. Can I just say something? I'm going to let you in on a dirty little secret. I've had other jobs. I know what it's like to have other jobs. I actually have some experience not being a pastor. Um, and here's something else that I will tell you. My job is super, super dangerous for the soul. It is dangerous for the soul. Because as a pastor, it becomes really tempting to try to do all the right things, but to do them for all the wrong reasons. To do ministry not out of love, but out of, out of something else. It can still be about ambition. It can still be about status seeking. It can still be about identity or validation. It can still be an attempt to prop up a fragile ego. And I have a fragile ego. Be nice to me. It can all be done for all the wrong reasons. Every job faces the same temptation. I just want to tell you guys something. Here's another dirty little secret. 
Not everything pastors do is motivated by love. Trust me. You guys, some of my, pa- my pastor buddies, they're terrible people. I'm kidding. I, 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 actually, I actually, actually love those guys. Um, but, but being a pastor doesn't suddenly change somebody's heart. Like, just like everybody else, I have a lot of work to do. So, so we worship through our work when it's motivated by love. Okay, secondly, whether we're in our dream job or not, we must do our work to the best of our ability. You can't do the job you don't have. You have to do the one that you actually have. And we do that job, whatever it happens to be, to the best of our ability. You may not be doing the type of work you most want to do. But as long as it truly contributes in some way to human flourishing, if it doesn't contribute at all to human flourishing, get a new job. But as long as it contributes to human flourishing in some kind of way, then you need to know, listen, your work really matters to God. It really matters. And now it could be changing tires at Les Schwab, or it could be bussing tables, or, or pulling weeds. In fact, historians argue that um, the, the, the rig- historians of religion argue that Christianity was not only the first religion, but actually the first worldview in general to ever dignify manual labor as something worthy of respect. Because in the ancient world, manual labor was thought to be fit only for slaves. It was thought to be beneath the dignity of the ruling class. But the Christian view came along and said, no, like manual labor, manual labor is a good thing. It is good and honest work, and it comes with God's blessing all over it. Adam was a gardener. Jesus was a carpenter. And the truth is, manual labor, it moves our world forward. So however mundane our job may or may not be, we are called to do whatever it is to the best of our ability. Okay, now don't hear me wrong. I didn't say that you are to be the very best at your job in a competitive sense. That's just more ego, and that just leads to more problems. We are to do our job to the best of our ability. Um, there's this all-encompassing line in Colossians that's it's awesome. Paul, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are to do whatever we do to the best of our ability. Like this is the barista at your, your local coffee shop that doesn't just hand you your latte with the lid on all screwy so that when you take a drink, the coffee spills all over your shirt, right? I know, first world problems. I get it. That's suffering, Seattle style. Like this is the barista that that pours their best effort, that's a little pun, pours their best effort into the work. Uh, they make like, right, like they make a little heart or they make a little beautiful tree in the foam or whatever and then they hand you the cup and they make sure the logo is facing you, right? And they smile and they make eye contact and they acknowledge you and they say something to bless you. They're just like, have a great day. You know, enjoy your grande, no water, you know, chai <laughs> with soy, And then they're just like, and by the way, I love the red flannel. 
Costco? Yeah, yeah, it is. Thanks for noticing. Like, you know that, that barista, right? They bring joy, baby. Okay, this is the handyman who doesn't just slam a bathroom remodel together as cheap as possible. By, yes. <laughs> handyman Rick. Amen. This is the handyman who doesn't, doesn't just slam some together as cheap as possible and like along the way ignore all the sketchy stuff that they found behind the wall. But does every step with, with skill and with attention to detail and does it with the passion of an artist. It's the preschool teacher who doesn't just see their job as like babysitting kids. This is the preschool teacher who doesn't just like chuck fishy crackers at kids all day long. But this is the preschool teacher that like gets down at their level to communicate with them, even without words. Like, okay, you're very, very special. And you have a, a destiny in God's great universe. And I'm really glad you're here. I like you. I care about you. I'm so thankful that I get to be here with you. This is the parent who doesn't just hand the kids a device and try to survive the day but as present as, as present as possible to unfold the children into their full potential. Uh, maybe you thought you were just like making breakfast, you know? You're like, oh, I have to get up and make breakfast for the kids again. Or maybe you just thought you're, you're checking, you know, you're, you're spell checking your email a second time or you're, you're setting another table at the restaurant. Actually, you're not. You're moving the world forward. And any task, no matter how mundane, can become an act of worship because your work really does matter to God. It does. So we do it with love and we do it to the best of our ability. And then I just want to close with one more. And you guys, this one is so stinking huge. As we work, whatever that work is, as we live out our calling, in whatever situation that calling might be being lived out, we are to fight for love and community. Like, how, how do you make the environment where you are more loving? Should be a question that's being asked, a thought that's being had over and over and over. How do you make that environment where you are more loving? How can you bring a culture and, like, how can you bring a culture and atmosphere of community to that place? How can you help people value and honor each other there? How can you cultivate healthy relationships, not just for yourself, but among the other people that are there? All, all through this series, we've, talked, we've been talking about how community is eroding all around, right? I mean, it's, it's bad. And so as we bring this to a close, I, I just want to hit this concept one last time. Because right now, so many people are eager to fight I, man, I went to the Mariners game this week on Wednesday, Boston Red Sox, big series. And there are some Boston Red Sox fans that behave badly. And then there are some Mariners fans that behave badly. <laughs> you guys, and they, and they started shouting at each other back and forth. And I was sitting there going, I can't take any more fighting over this kind of nonsense. I was just like, I just want to get out of here. Also, the Mariners were losing. <laughs> There's so much fighting. People are so eager to fight. The tribalism is off the charts. And people want to identify who's with us and who's against us and let's go to war. What if as apprentices of Jesus, we were to fight 
but we were to fight for love and community wherever we can. What, what if we did all that we can to actually go into every environment that we go into and repair as many relationships as possible? To bring unity to the groups of people everywhere we go. Not that we don't resist in, in, in injustice, we have to. Not that we don't get angry sometimes, we have to. But my goodness, you guys, there is so much hate in our world right now. People are so quick to judge each other and write each other off. Authentic, loving community is becoming more and more rare. And while there are issues of injustice to be angry about, I don't think that all the isolation and tribalism is what God desires. I think God wants his kids to love and respect each other. I mean, this is what healthy parents want. Hopefully you, you guys as parents, you know, you see your kids starting to, you can see the temperatures rising, they're about to explode, and you're not, as a parent, if you're healthy, you're not like, yeah, fight, 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 right? There's something wrong with that. If that's you, check in with somebody, right? I mean, healthy parents want their kids to get, to get along. And, um, and this week, I, I, just, I just felt this in a, in a big time way, um, on Monday, Cameron, uh, my son, flew back to Haiti after a two-week visit here. Um, so he, he lives in Haiti, and he came home because he wanted to be here for his 21st birthday and go have a beer with his dad. And we had a beer, and it was awesome. Um, so he turned 21 on the trip, and we just celebrated him like crazy. It was super sweet. It was an amazing time with him. And um, his turning 21 and the whole trip, it's just, it was like this, it was this amazing time for me as a dad to sit back and go, whoa, like he's growing up and he's maturing before our eyes. And I could, there were times when I was like, I could just feel the maturity dripping off of him. I'm serious. Like you guys who, who didn't get a chance to be around him, he is really growing up. It's cool. So Monday afternoon this week, Brooklyn, who is 14, his little sister, got home from school uh, for those of you that might have your hair blown back by this, she's in high school. <laughs> and um, she's a freshman. And we, so we, she got home and on Monday and, and just in time for us to take Cam to the airport to fly back to Haiti. But something happened right before that made me smile. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment. Let me just kind of set this up. As you know, life has not been easy for Cam. And I won't dive into that whole thing. That is an understatement. But he has really found himself in Haiti. It's been over two years, and it has been tough, but he is making a life for himself there. He's teaching English. He's living in an apartment with friends, a young Haitian couple that just got married. He's developing more and more deep friendships. There's meaning, purpose, community, joy. And he has fought really hard to make all of that work. But he has also fought really hard to stay connected to some of us at home. So he talks to me and he talks to his mom and he talks to both of his sisters every week. And he makes sure that we all have our like separate time to talk with him. And it's, it's usually at least an hour for each of us. Um, and, and so here's what, we're all fighting to stay super connected. We're fighting for love and community. Now with Brooklyn, he talks and then also... Um, they watch a show together. Like, they watch it at the same time. He's in Haiti and she's in Mukilteo. And they watch it together. And then they talk and they, and they go through life and all that. 
But the, this is not easy for them to manage, but they, but they figure out a way, right? Kim lives on the other side of the world, but he has fought for love and community. And so has she, so has Brooklyn. So now in this last season, Cam's been teaching himself to play guitar. Some of you are like, where is this story going? Trust me, this will tie in. Hang with me. Cam is learning to play guitar. And Brooke is now taking choir at school. And so during the trip, this two-week trip home, at certain times, they would just do music together. Uh, Mostly, I think, Cam would just play music, like worship songs. I wasn't in the room with them for most of it. He would just play worship songs, and they would sing together. And so I would overhear it. And it was heartwarming for me, really. So... On Monday, just before we left for the airport, Cam and Brooke said, hey, mom and dad, before we leave, can we show you something? And so they had practiced one of the songs from the show that they watch. High School Musical, the musical, the series. (laughs) I mean, you never miss an episode, do you, Bob? Yeah. So they sat down to play, and uh, Jen grabbed her phone, and she recorded it. But I was just sitting there, I was like, stunned, because I was like, um, my kids do sports. <laughs> we, don't, we don't do music. Uh, and, and yet, here they were, they were going, and they, they were better than anything that I could have ever imagined. Um, but that's not really the cool part. The, the, the cool part for me was just how much fun they had being together. And the reality that they have had to fight so hard. To stay connected. These guys have had to fight through and push through so many relational barriers. But they've done that. They're committed to that. And here's, so here's what I'll tell you. This is why I'm telling you this story. As a dad, there is very little that brings me more joy, that brings a dad more joy than watching your kids enjoy each other. Just love each other. Just be friends. And knowing that they had to, to fight so hard to make it work, that's what makes it special. So, okay. Do you guys mind if I show you the video? Okay, let's go. Dave, would you kill the lights in here? We want the full, yeah, we want the full, the full action here.
You got as, as a parent, there is just this surge of joy in seeing your kids enjoy each other. And here's what I'll tell you. This is, this is why I bring this up. I, I just think this is the image of God in us. Because I think that God feels a surge of joy when his kids enjoy each other. And these days, that joy is harder and harder and harder for him to find. There's so much isolation and individualism and tribalism and anger and hate. Somebody has got to fight for love and community. It's not easy right now at all. And, and just like with my kids, there, is, there are so many barriers that have to be overcome. There's the isolation of COVID. There's the anger. There's the political tensions. There's, it's, it's all there. And they are barriers and those are real. But somebody's got to push through that. So as we end this series, we've been thinking about like the context of work today. But really, you can put this in any context in which you might find yourself. This is, this is applicable in, in, at work with coworkers, with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, whatever the context. Are you willing to fight for love and community? To do things, whatever you can, with all of your heart and all of your creativity that bring people together. And then to refuse to do the kinds of things that tear people apart. God has work for you to do. God has ways for you to move the world forward. And one of those ways is to build community wherever you can. So whatever you do for work, how can you build community there? How can you foster relationships coming together? Because any little movement forward is a big deal. Why? Because your father delights when his kids love each other. So how can you partner with him to bring as much of that as possible? Like this is worship. This is calling. This is work. We all have work to do. But our work can become worship. And to close, I just want to pray a prayer over us that many of you guys know inside out. I want to recite the prayer taught to us by Jesus himself. Because I think that this prayer is so fitting for the world that we live in right now. So I want to invite you guys to stand and to bow as I pray the prayer of our Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May you be praised and exalted throughout the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And together all God's people said, Amen.